Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to this week's episode of Talking with Traders. And this week, I'm delighted to bring back a previous guest from uh, 2020, and that's Sean Ashton, the manager of the Sierra Global Fund. Uh, We had a great interview uh, in December 2020, which at the end of that year was a superb uh, year for Sean after the fund got off to a little bit of a a shaky start during the time of COVID. Um, But Sean, welcome back. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you and and talking about the year past and the opportunities that are present in the market at the moment. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. When we last spoke, Sean, it was December 2020. So it had been a hell of a year. Uh, We'd obviously seen the COVID crash in March of 2020. Uh, and coincidentally, that was around about the time that you actually launched the Sierra Global Fund. So it was Mid-February, a bit of a... Bat- yeah. So we were probably uh, three weeks in. <laughs> yeah. I remember you said you had literally got started three weeks before the crash. And um, <laughs> obviously a difficult start, but it ended up being a superb year for you in 2020. Yeah, uh, you managed to to reweight and, and get quite heavily involved into that weakness during during the crash, and um, and I mean at the time you said that you had gone back to first principles and looked at the cost of capital and looked at the stimulus that the Fed was injecting into the markets at the time. And you basically looked at that situation and said, well, COVID at the time you said you figured that COVID and that would, would knock around about 4% off, should not knock about 4% off the valuation of some of these businesses. Whereas, you know, in many cases they had fallen 30%. So Absolutely. you saw, you, you saw the of, opportunity. Yeah, how, how do you discount, how do you discount one year's worth of lost cash flow? And then, uh, a recovery from there. Yeah, so that's it. And I really respected your level-headed approach to that. And obviously, you utilized that to your advantage, picking up stocks uh, at, at deeply discounted levels in, in the first or second quarter of, of 2020. And and the result being that 2020 as a year was an exceptional year for you. 2021 has been a very difficult year for a lot of managers of of growth stocks. And I know you're quite heavily skewed towards the growth space. So how was 2021 for you? No, it was poor. Um, So we ended the year, well, I ended the year more or less flat, I think in the class C units of the, which is where all the AUM sits largely in the fund that I run, we were up about 2% for the year. So it was a really, really tough year. Um, it's not to say we didn't have a handful of winners, but we stepped on a number of landmines, um, some unrelated, but 
I think that if asked to summarize the year, it would be a case of having too much exposure to, to high growth tech, especially in the small to mid cap space. Um, and that's what really cost us. You know, there were a lot of stocks that have kind of halved from uh, from their highs, not to say we were all in at the highs, um, but you know, a lot of damage took place uh, in in that space. Mm. And of course, I mean, you're not alone. Everyone knows Kathy Wood and ARC, the ARC Innovation Fund. Um, and I've got a chart of that up in front of me at the moment. I mean, it had a dreadful year in, in 2021. Um, yep. And it's that fund is down, but it's halved really from its peak in, in yes. early 2021. So I can understand you're not alone in that respect. But let's not uh, dwell too much on the past. Let's have a look at, at where we are now. I mentioned the point around first principles and how in in early 2020, you had gone back to first principles to look at the cost of capital and the fact that the cost of capital was still very, very low. And therefore, the discount to, to stocks at that stage was just far too cheap. We sit in an interesting space now where that whole backdrop around the cost of capital and the future outlook in terms of stimulus has changed quite dramatically. So where do you stand now when you look at those first principles as a as a broad backdrop towards your investing thesis? Yes. So I think let's take a step back and 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 yeah, talk talk about uh, before we get on to valuation, let's talk about the cost of capital. I think that uh, <clears throat> I suspect a lot of the damage has already happened. Um, you've had a massive adjustment in both short and and long term interest rates, particularly in the US, where you've gone from kind of fifty basis points on uh, on the ten year yield to just shy of two percent. What I find very interesting at the moment is that um, the, the short end is obviously leading the charge uh, higher, uh, and that's a function of the abrupt pivot that you've seen from the Fed to being a lot more hawkish on inflation now than they were certainly six months ago, and not dismissing it as, as merely transitory. Um, but at the same time, you've seen a consistent flattening of the yield curve. In other words, the, the short-term rates are rising much faster than long-term rates, and that tells me that the that yeah, the market is starting to get concerned about the Fed possibly raising rates at exactly the time that they shouldn't be doing it. Um, and I think this comes back to, and you haven't really seen this show up in the, you know, the jobs numbers yet or the or the economic indicators, but you are seeing commentary from some businesses that are consumer facing, specifically in the goods sector, where they're talking about a much tougher first three months of this year, probably the first six months of this year, and that's. I think that's largely a function of the base that they're batting against. And you know, if you think about the e-commerce businesses that had a really, really good first half of last year, um, yeah, off the top of my head, Amazon's uh, sales and their retail businesses were up 40 and 60% respectively in North America and Europe or rest of the world. Um, and their, their most recent guidance now for the first quarter of this, this year in, implies that that's going to be more or less flat. Um, it's kind of the, my best guess. So, and we've seen this commentary from a few other companies, PayPal included, um, that, that e-commerce is, uh, is facing some headwinds. And I think you know, if we extend that to the broader economy, I think you could see quite a meaningful slowdown in, in this next six months that we're in. Um, and my, my view is that, the, and I think this is echoed by the market in terms of the shape of the yield curve, the, the Fed probably is behind the curve. I think that's fair to say. And they, they probably should have started tightening six months ago. And they could be tightening if we're starting in March at, at exactly the time that they shouldn't be. Um, so I, I'm not of the opinion that uh, long-term rates can race off to three and a half, four percent I just uh, I think that the, a lot of the inflationary 
uh, debate that we're having these days is let, let's yeah let's go back to first principles again. I think in the first instance, this inflation was caused by a supply side shock. We mustn't forget that. Mm. Um, I think some of it is flowing through into wages, and they do need to get uh, get a handle on that. But uh, there's at least a decent chunk of of inflation that's driven by supply side problems that will get solved. Um, and it's a case of yeah. Is it going to be this year or next year? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but uh, it will get resolved. And when you're thinking about very long dated bonds, 10 year plus, you know, that cost of capital should be discounting the longer term trend in inflation, not what's going to happen in a six to 12 month period. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting conundrum, this inflation debate, because as you say, it's the supply side and supply bottlenecks that has caused a lot of the inflation. But then you've also got this wage inflation issue. And I guess the market is now grappling with this whole issue of where does inflation settle? Because right now we've got US inflation sitting at about seven odd percent. I mean, it's a very, very, absolutely the highest in 40 years, but there's also going to be a base effect now coming through for the rest of this year. So it's almost, I mean, almost it's guaranteed that the inflation rate will slow down as the quarters unravel throughout the rest of this year because of the high base effect that we're measuring against from last year. But I guess the big question is where does it settle? You know, does it settle? Does it come all the way back to 2% like the Fed would like, which it doesn't look like that's going to be the case? Or does it settle somewhere around three and a half, maybe 4%? Or, you know, and and that, I guess that's the big debate for the market right now, isn't it? As to where does where do we see that long-term inflation rate setting settling? And, and consequently, where do longer-term rates need to settle? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my best guess on that would be that uh, we probably get to the, the, the threes rather than the twos by the end of this year. Mm. And that'll be a function of the base effect washing out. But I think you know, wage inflation is still, um, is still a problem. Um, and that maybe has just gotten going now. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I still think that you know, politically, also in a midterm year, I'm not sure that the Fed's going to, you know, they also understand that the, you know, the, the developed world economy and especially the US is a hyper financialized economy. Everything's on margin. Asset prices create a, a reflexive uh, feedback loop back into activity levels. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's got to explain at least a big portion of, uh, you know, the, the, except, you know the, the high demand that we've had in the last year. But the, I don't believe they're going to blindly crush asset prices um, just to get in front of inflation. I might be wrong on that, um, but yeah, that would be extremely counterproductive. And if they're going to hike rates hundreds of basis points, uh, that, that's, uh, and I'm talking well north of what's being priced into the, uh, the, the current yield curve, I, I think that would be extremely counterproductive. And I think it's something that they're aware of. Mm. So for me, I think the Fed has got a, a pain level of, or a level of tolerance of pain beyond which I would expect them to uh, to take their foot off the gas. But again, this is this is an important uh, debate that everyone's having in every investment committee uh, around the world nowadays, and, and nobody knows the answers. And that's why we've got such volatility. Absolutely. The volatility has been huge lately. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, that's it, right? Is Where, where do we... You know, has the market overshot to the downside is the, is the question. And again, I mean, I'm not asking you to answer the question because I think everybody is, is asking the same question. But, you know, 
things were probably a little bit too frothy uh, as we headed in the early part of 2021. And, and one does wonder, the market pendulum tends to swing too far in either direction. And the question I guess we're all asking ourselves right now is, has the pendulum swung too far to the other side in the sense that some of these growth long duration stocks have been absolutely obliterated and and the fact that the pendulum has now swung so far the other way does this actually present an opportunity to get involved and is there is there likely to be a little bit of a recovery and and sort of a normalization i guess in some of these stocks that have really been hit very very hard and we'll talk about some of those names in in a moment so i I think it has um it might still be too early and you've probably got a lot of choppiness to uh, to follow but I, th- I think the the first point I'd make is a lot of the stocks that have been murdered you've got to be very selective I think as as always mm. um, but you, a lot of the stocks that have been murdered can now be valued and assessed on pretty real world traditional valuation metrics mm. it's not the case that they're all uh, earnings lists or cash flow list companies that are that were just pie in the sky um, you know there, there are some real businesses here that have been thrown into the overall mix that are down yeah, 50, 60, 70% in some cases, um, and are now free cash flow positive. And I think you want to focus on the companies where there's still a long-term structural top-line story, but where they're much closer to being free cash flow positive, or ideally are actually free cash flow positive already. Yeah. Um, and, and so you're not dependent on capital markets to, uh, I think this is a key issue, you, you're not dependent on capital markets to fund your growth. In mm-hmm. other words, if, you, if you're in a position where you have to issue shares, in the next 12 months to fund your growth, that's that's uncomfortable. And I think there's probably still pain to be had in, in that space. But if you're a business that's kind of passed through the inflection point where you're now self-funding um, and you can buy into say a, even a one to two to 3% free cash flow yield growing at 30%, that, that looks like a decent equation to me now. And there are examples of that. All right, we're gonna get into some of those and, and, and talk stock specifics in a moment. But just before we get to that, I wanna just chat to you a little bit around risk management um, and and how you manage the risk, because I know obviously this has been a tough year uh, for you the past year. When we spoke previously, you, you said you don't use stop losses because it doesn't marry to your style of investing, which is, makes perfect sense. You're a more of a longer term investor, so stop losses are, are far more relevant to shorter term traders. Um, you also said that you don't typically use options for hedging. Has your view on all of that changed over the last year, given the level of volatility and the, the, the losses that has been seen in some of these uh, high growth stocks? Look, it's fair to say that if if I had implemented a stop loss system at the beginning of last year, my year would have looked completely different. It would have saved our bacon for sure. Hmm. So it, it is something that I've considered um, and continue to consider. I haven't implemented a stop loss system as yet. Uh, but I'm taking a serious look at it, Garth, because it's uh, the, the reality is we, you know, we rode a, a number of stocks down 30, 40 percent plus. Um, and yeah, had had we taken the emotion out of it and said, you know, at a certain level, we we cutting our losses and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there would have probably been 10 to 15 percent more performance last year, at least, I would say. Yeah. So, yes, it's something I'm considering. I haven't looked seriously at the at the optionality side of things but from a from a stop loss perspective i wouldn't rule that out as a as a possible change to the process of how i do things and risk and manage risk mm, okay okay super Let's then have a look at some of the opportunities that are lining up in the market right now because i think that's what a lot of the listeners would really like to hear from you uh, and 
there are plenty of them out there at the moment. Um, so offline, we've we've discussed a couple of them: China Tech, Facebook, um, etc. Let's go through a couple of stocks and a couple of themes, maybe that are now starting to look very, very enticing potentially if we believe that this market has overshot and the pendulum has swung too far to the one side and maybe you know, the fundamental monetary policy backdrop is not as, as aggressive down the line as what the markets are fearing at this point in time. So let's have a look at some themes and let's let's start with um, a discussion around China tech as a, as a starting point. And we'll go through a couple of other stocks that, that you've mentioned, which are looking interesting as we progress this discussion. Yeah, same thing from a from a China perspective. Again, you've got to be um, you've got to be quite uh, selective there. But I think it's it strikes me that uh, Chinese tech you know, had their sell off a lot earlier than the US did. Um, you've you've in many cases, and I think let's take a step back as to why that's happened. You've obviously had a huge amount of regulatory uh, burden that they faced last year. The news flow was just unrelentingly bad from pretty much October of 2020 all the way through to where we are now. Mm. Um, at the same time, you had some major capital allocation question marks which were being raised in the minds of investors. I mean, you know, Tencent was, found themselves donating billions of dollars to corporate social initiative uh, initiatives in, in China. And no doubt that was at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. It was, I'm pretty sure it wasn't just out of the kindness of their hearts. And, and that, I think that spooked a lot of investors, myself included. So I, I actually bailed from Tencent at about $580 somewhere around the middle of last year and that's uh, Hong Kong dollars mm. uh, and hadn't been back into it until fairly recently. And I think what's changed for me um, is that obviously valuations have, have rolled on. You've, you've had another year worth of, worth of earnings growth. Um, but I think more importantly, it seems to me that the capital allocation story might be changing. You've, you've had them unbundling a stake in, in JD.com. You're starting to see share buybacks coming through. I think that the the rate of change of regulatory noise out of China, unless it accelerates from here, I think that it's, that's at the margin. That's good news. If it just quietens down and doesn't get worse, that becomes marginally better news. Okay, um, and these things have been beaten down, and, and they actually are quite cheap right now. So, so I think that's. And I think the, the other point is technically, I think some of them are starting to look a lot better. Ten cents yeah. in particular to me looks. Yeah. Looks like it's starting to form a bit of a base. Uh, it might be a little bit early still, um, but it doesn't look like you're catching a falling knife anymore, uh, which which is what it seems like with, with certain US tech stocks. Yeah, I certainly concur with that. I mean, I, I watch just as a broad um, ETF is the KWeb ETF. That's the China Tech yep. ETF. I've and, got some exposure there too. Yeah, and, and I mean, I guess for listeners who want a broad, diversified exposure to China Tech without having to do any stock-specific homework, that's one easy way to do it is to, to yes. trade or to buy that KWeb ETF, which is listed in New York. Um, yep. But but just you, you mentioned the technicals and as exactly as I see it, you know, we've seen this massive rout in the NASDAQ and in, in uh, high growth tech stocks in the US. And whilst all of that has been happening over the last, say, two, two months, that Chinese, uh, that KWeb ETF has actually been flatlining. So yes. on a relative performance basis, it's, cer- 
it's it's been outperforming by by a long way just based yeah. on the fact that everything else has been going down while china tech has been basing so that for me as a as a technical indicator is very very interesting to see that it's effectively it's stopped falling it's begun to form a base and it's been very immune from the broader tech sell off in in the US so i completely concur there it seems okay. as if they, the, they the, took their pain yeah. earlier on <laughs> yeah 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 um all right well that's that's china tech um, out of the way, let's move back then to the US, where where I know a lot of your focus is, uh, and some of the stocks that have been really drilled very very hard there recently, and might be starting to set up. and And I think I'd be very curious to hear your insights on these. So let's start with a look at uh, Meta, which you know most people will still know it as Facebook, but the company yeah. changed its name to Meta Platforms. Um, what do you think there? It's it's come off yeah, very hard. It- it obviously falls into the camp of falling life. <laughs> let's be let's be clear about that. It's basically dropped forty percent uh, peak to trough now, um, and I think it was off somewhere around five percent yesterday. I think the investment thesis has changed, and this is what's made a lot of investors uncomfortable. And let, let's be clear, right? This was my second biggest holding going into this uh, earnings results, and I've actually been a seller in the last few days, more out of the more out of a case of risk management rather than an overtly negative view on the company, okay, or, or even its valuation for that matter. But it's just risk management. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've sized the position size down. Um, doesn't mean that I think it's dead and buried. But um, having said that, I think the, it was clear to me from when they announced the, the name change to, to Meta that the, the investment thesis was changing from one of a fairly mature but still growing social media company to now one where they're putting huge investment behind this thing called the metaverse, which we don't yet know what it means. Um, and we, we don't know what profit contribution might or might not eventually come from this initiative down the line. And that's what's made investors very uncomfortable. But at the same time, if you cast your mind back you know, to even pre the days when Facebook was listed, uh, we didn't know how they would monetize the poor platform. I think that Zuckerberg is probably ahead of most people in this regard, mm. and he probably sees a future that we don't. Uh, I would still back him to achieve this, but it's uncomfortable right now because you're defending a large profit base that seems to be under a bit of pressure right now, um, and they're, they're spending, one might argue, wildly on a, on a moonshot bet that might or might not pay off. I think this result, um, you know, what caused the 25% sell-off? Uh, well, it was really the for the first time ever, their user numbers uh, at an aggregate level flatline, which probably means that the core Facebook platform is down because um, you've still got growth in WhatsApp and uh, uh, and Instagram. I think those would be the, the, you know, the properties that are still growing. So I think there's concern around a tobacco-style maturity in user numbers. And if we've, and that kind of reinforces the terminal value fears that people have with with Facebook, and and that's why I say the the thesis is changing. Is this becoming a value stock rather than a growth company? Where you've now got to say, well, there's X cash flows today, but the terminal value must be low. We must put a low PE on those cash flows because they're losing user numbers at the margin, um, and 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 that that's the fear right now. Um, at the same time, they've got it to. Uh, very low revenue growth for the first quarter. And that feeds into this narrative of having a very high prior year base, plus all the Apple issues with them not being able to target ads properly. I think what are the what are the positives right now? I think the the valuation is the lowest it's ever been. Uh, okay, it's a forward 15 multiple on 
consensus earnings, which incidentally I think are too low because uh, they're now buying back shares apace. Um, you know, they, they, they spent about $20 billion buying back shares in the last quarter. I would expect that they've been quite active, um, certainly post this result. I'd hope that they have. Um, and, and they've probably got the ability to, you know, to, to remove 5% of the share count uh, annually right now. Yeah. And you're now in a position where even on a fairly depressed free cash flow number this year, I think they'll do about 27 to $28 billion of free cash flow. And that, incidentally, that's down 30%, right, year on year. Okay. Um, but that's at a very low free cash flow margin. CapEx is enormously elevated relative to history. So you could argue it's a depressed earnings base, and you're getting that in the 4.5% free cash flow yield. Um, so I'd be quite confident that they, they should be able to show growth off that base. And we must remember that the metaverse spend is discretionary at the end of the day. Um, yes, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's got a controlling vote, and you know, what he says goes. And the, the risk is that he kind of loses his mind and loses rationality with – uh, what might be a pet project, uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think he—I don't think he's seeking to just uh, set money alight for its own sake. Um, so I think at a point in time, you would expect rationality to prevail. Uh, but right now, you know, the narrative is overtly negative. It's very hard to find a Facebook bull at the moment, um, unless it's a valuation argument. But uh, there's a lot of bad news baked into this thing right now, and you—you you really do need to believe that had that. That Apple has permanently handicapped their business for them for the share not to at least deliver a decent return from here. Yeah, yeah. So it almost feels like it's the, the base has been reset, and you, I think you, the base has been uh, horrifically <laughs> reset yeah. in a very violent manner. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, we need to see how that shakes out. You, but guys, you, uh, it's, yeah, it's, so. very, it's very cheap. Uh, the question is: Is it a value trap or not? Yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, and, and it's always interesting. The noise is always the loudest at the extremes, I find, be it both yeah. on the upside and on the downside. And the, the noise is hell of a loud at the moment, <laughs> given that the stock has, has, has fallen so much. And the record that it set the other day, the biggest daily market cap loss for a company ever. Um, $230 billion. Hey? Yeah, I think that Zuckerberg lost $30 billion himself. I mean, I would have vomited in the toilet if that was me, but that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> shame shame i think is all we can say he's you know he's down to his last however many hundreds yeah. of, of billions <laughs> yeah, all right exactly. so that's that's facebook and and meta uh, out of the way you're listening to talking with traders a podcast series brought to you by ig a world-leading online trading and investment provider if you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Let's have a look at a couple of the other names that you've liked. Um, Teladoc is a stock that you've you've also liked. Uh, it's also been bashed up very aggressively. Yeah, it's yeah. So Teladoc Health, just for listeners, I mean, it's a online health platform. Uh, effectively, I mean, if we had to really d- to simplify it down to its very basic, basic components, you don't have to go and physically see the doctor. You can do it online. Yes. That's and a big part do. of their business has now become as a result of um, an acquisition that they made of Livongo, which it in- incidentally, I think was, they probably paid too much. And that's, that I'm sure has something to do with the derating of the stock, but uh, they paid $18 billion for Livongo, which is a 
a chronic care uh, management program business. They, they look after diabetes patients where you've, you've got these devices that can measure your, uh, your blood glucose levels remotely, and then they, they kind of push you instructions um, you know, to, uh, to, to your devices to, to manage that process. Um, so that's quite a sticky customer base. But you know, this thing has gotten cut in, well, not half, much worse than half. It's gone from $300 to, to 74 mm. I started getting interested around the 130 level, uh, thinking that that had that had been enough pain, but that that clearly wasn't <laughs> wasn't the case. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so again, it's it's a very small position that I've got uh, more from a risk management point of view. I've, I've had a larger position size, but uh, I suppose have been forced to de-risk in in the face of what's happening. Um, but but let's talk about where they sit now. So you've got a market cap of um, eleven billion dollars. Uh, they yeah, they're growing their top line at 25% per annum. I think there was some disappointment in terms of their margin guidance, but importantly, this thing is free cash flow positive this year, okay? Mm. Um, it makes a 14 to 15% EBITDA margin on a business with a 70% gross margin. So if they can continue to grow their user base and deliver the, the 25% top line growth uh, you know, for, for the next number of years, I think it's a business that should get to north of 20% EBITDA margins. Um, and you're buying it at a yeah what what I think is close to a three percent free cash flow yield now. So it's mm-hmm. not to say that yeah these are quite traditional yeah you 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 look at that metric and you say well for a growth business growing twenty percent plus that's actually not that bad. Um, mm-hmm. It actually looks fairly attractive right now. The problem is that the the charts are still broken. So yeah, you know, your technical analysts will look at it and say well. That thing's way below its moving averages. It's just puking. Um, you need to see it basing, and I, I don't disagree with that. So, yeah. and and hence why I think it's it's probably not yet appropriate to to have big position sizes in these things that are that, are, that still appear to be under a lot of pressure. But, but yeah, what you are seeing emerging now is kind of realistic valuation metrics for some of these businesses, and I think Teladoc is one of them. Mm. What I'm seeing with all of these is is the, exactly as you say, the charts look awful. Um, but you also find that with these types of setups where these things have fallen off a cliff, the basing process can take a bit of time. But yep. uh, but you but and for that reason, you don't have to rush out and fill your boots immediately. But certainly, exactly. if you get that basing process playing out over the next year, let's say that will give you the opportunity to build up these positions and accumulate them again. It's not yep. going to be a V-shaped recovery, but certainly, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think too much damage has happened, uh, and there's too many shareholders that are underwater that are going to want to be exiting at higher prices. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think I think the, the the psyche of the market has changed because of how much damage has happened. Right. Uh, to, a, to a lot of shareholders, and I, yeah, I, I'm sure you probably wouldn't disagree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Super. Then um, Roku was a stock that you mentioned on our previous podcast when we spoke the last time, and yeah. that's also one of these stocks that's been drilled very, very hard. Where are you standing on that at the moment? Yeah. So I've round tripped that one all the way from 120 odd dollars to to a 450 dollar price, and all the way back to where we are now, which is 155. So. Um, I think that uh, again. So the that that is one where I think the the valuation metrics are stacking up again. I think that they are facing some tough comps in the in the first two quarters of this year, having you know bat- and and this is this is consistent with what we've seen with a lot of tech companies where you, you had a, a first six month period of last year that was juiced by either stimulus in the case of the e-commerce guys or 
um, lockdowns, which kind of forced people to consume content online and spend a lot of time in their homes. Um, and, and yeah, in the case of Roku, their turnover was up 80% in the first half of last year. That's what you're we did see that slow against slow into the second half of last year. And I think the first six months is your toughest year on your comp. Okay. So I think the market is fearful of what they might report in the next few months and the guidance that they're going to give. Mm. Um, I think it gets easier as you move through the year into the back half of the year. But for context here, you know, this is a business which um, which has, now has a market cap of about, well, an EV of about $20 billion. Uh, and they, sh- <clears throat> they should deliver a free cash flow of, let's call it, 370 370 odd million dollars. So, you know, it's it's approaching a 2% free cash flow yield, let's say 1.7%, which doesn't sound all that fancy, but you know, I, I always look at these things and I say, well, would I rather buy a government bond at 1.9% or um, a free cash flow yield just a little bit less, but that's going to give me 30%, probably going to give me 30% growth for a few years because their margins are nowhere near where they can get to. Uh, and I think the important thing to understand about uh, Roku is that they have effectively two businesses just for the listeners to understand it's a it's a streaming business in in the u.s um where they have a 30 percent market share of all television sold and they have like you know contract manufacturer partners that they use to make make roku branded tvs and dongle sticks to 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 watch tv and it's an ad driven um streaming service so you don't have to pay to watch certain content that they provide on, on on the television but you have to watch the odd ad here and there and it's a neat way of playing the shift from linear television advertising dollars to connected TV advertising dollars. They'll be one of the major beneficiaries, along with your YouTubes and your uh, trade desks and those guys. But you know, mm-hmm. these guys will certainly scoop up um, their fair share of, of that massive shift from TV ad dollars to, to, to connected TV. Um, but what you have in this business is two, two distinct uh, business units. The first one is the player uh, division which is you know, effectively them selling the hardware to get you as a user. And they're actually making a negative gross margin on that business right now um, because they're having to absorb commodity costs, inflation. And then the platform business, which is actually where all the value sits. Um, and that makes a 65% gross margin and that's rising. Uh, and that's effectively the advertising dollars and the content sales that they're getting through their platform. Now, if you look at the, the, the group gross margins kind of in the 50s and they'll be making an operating profit margin somewhere around 10 or 11%. Now, as the platform business becomes much bigger in the mix, you would expect that the mix ship will move more towards a higher margin business model. So um, so what you're buying right now is a business with a free cash flow yield of uh, yeah, just, just less than 2%, but uh, yeah, margins that are nowhere near where they can get to in the long term. I think structurally, I would expect this margin, this business to at least be able to double its margin from where they are now. Okay. Um, at the same time as delivering very strong turnover growth. So, so that's kind of the, uh, yeah, the, the very high level story with Roku. Um, but again, it's been it's been absolutely savage. It's gone from 450 to to 150, and uh, yeah, I think you've got a lot of frightened shareholders here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This that's right. Certainly, a lot of. Um... I guess stale bills up above guys that have anyone that's I'm just looking at the chart. Here. I mean, anybody that's really owned the share or bought the share since about August of 2020 is, is effectively underwater now. So it's a lot of you um, your COVID gains for, and, and yeah. this is the same pattern we're seeing with lots of companies that benefited from COVID. They've given it all back. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Um, Digital Ocean is another one that you mentioned you'd like to chat about. Tell us about your thoughts there. Yeah, a very small cap, uh, $7 billion. I suppose that, that certainly counts as small, small to mid cap in the in, in a US context. Mm. Um, so so it's an interesting one because they you've obviously got your massive uh, bulge bracket cloud providers uh, globally like AWS, um, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud. Um, these are very large businesses and they cater to mega enterprise businesses. But DigitalOcean is an interesting company that focuses more on your small to medium and even startup companies that need a cloud solution. And the reason that your your small to medium companies and even your startups would want to use these guys is they are ostensibly a lot easier to onboard as customers um, with their solution versus an AWS where the integration process is actually quite complicated uh, and you need a large team to be able to do it. Whereas with a, a small business, you want to be able to have a plug and play type of approach where it's, it's quite it's quite easy to get going um, and you can start from a very low base. And that's exactly the market that they're playing in. They've got about uh, 600,000 um, customers um, and, and that's growing 10% per annum, but their average spend is growing way faster than that. Okay. All right. Super. Um, then one more company, and then also just to talk around the travel names, but um, PayPal quickly is a is a company that I know you've liked for some time. That's also been hit very, very hard over the last couple of months. Um, yeah. I see, I mean, me being a, a, mainly a technical guy, I see big support for PayPal at about $120 uh, a share. So where do you stand on that one? PayPal is being punished for um, two things at the moment. I think the and the first one is not an unknown. I think uh, yeah they they had eBay as a customer on their platform processing a lot of payments for for eBay's business. Mm. eBay has been transitioning away from PayPal's platform for the better half better part of a year now, and it's it'll basically be out of the base in 2022. So that they've they've got a headwind. Uh, ju- just by by the by the mere fact that they've lost or are losing eBay as a customer, okay, so that's dropping out of their base. Right. And so the growth rate that you see is actually it gives a worse picture as of what the actual underlying state of the business is. And I think this is still a business that's growing their turnover at twenty percent if you if you strip out the impact of eBay, okay. Mm. Um, so so that's the predominant factor. But I think what what probably what probably scared the market more in this result is that they they have they they, they changed their guidance around uh, the number of customers that they're looking to onboard. That they, they previously talked about, I think it was um, 750 million um, as a as a kind of longer term target uh, in terms of active accounts. They have now said that we don't think that's appropriate anymore. We're going to focus on higher value accounts and accounts that are that are actually paying us. And the reason for that is that they, they found that there were a number of accounts that had been created where these people had just created accounts in order to take advantage of incentives. So they're not driving uh, account creation with incentives any longer because they just weren't getting the return on that. And I think that that's, that spooked the market because now the market's going, well, okay, so you were spending all this money just to drive user numbers and you know, create a good impression with the market. And that's obviously the, uh, the, the bare way of looking at it. Uh, the bull way of looking at it is to say, well, at least they are being disciplined now, and they're saying, okay, the the return on uh, the return on on investment that we've made in these users is not there. Let's cut those users from the from the platform, 
Uh, let's not invest in incentives and rather focus on on driving engagement from the users that that uh, that kind of contribute all the earnings, right? And I, so I think that's the right thing to be doing from a management perspective. Uh, but in the you know for them to deliver news like that in a market environment like this, I suppose it, it was only inevitable that they would get punished, uh, and that's exactly what we've seen. Um, yeah, so I think PayPal again. Um, Again, it's getting to it's getting to a valuation level that I think is, uh, is is making sense. Once again, they they're talking about six billion dollars worth of free cash flow that they think they can deliver this year. I think the market cap's about 140 billion. Yeah, so so again, that's north of a four percent free cash flow yield. And if you if you believe that 2022 represents a clean base from them to grow off, um, yeah, and they can still deliver 15 to 20 percent growth for a while. Uh, yeah, this wouldn't be a bad entry point longer term. Uh, but Absolutely. again, it comes back to the whole falling knife argument, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you want to see basis form. So I think my approach to all of these things, Garth, is to have small placeholder positions for now. Um, and if they show some sign of proper consolidation, I'll scale into position size uh, a little bit more. Even if it's at higher prices, I don't mind doing that. I just don't want to catch falling knives. I've, yeah. I've done that too much in the last 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I love what you're saying there about, you know, having a placeholder position, it keeps you focused on it. So that's still in your portfolio and it keeps your eye on the ball. But as you can see that if, if that trading action begins to improve, the base begins to form and you can start to see some clear evidence of, of a recovery, you know, share price starting to make higher lows, higher highs and so on, an indication yes. that the worst is behind it, then you've got your fundamental stories pretty well wrapped up by the sound of things. You just need the trading action to begin to improve and um, and, and and then you can start to add and build, build up on those positions. Yeah. Um, lastly, travel names. I mean, I look at myself now, I'm finally after two years nearly of not doing a hell of a lot of traveling because of COVID and lockdowns and all sorts of travel restrictions. You know, I'm starting to now finally look at booking a, a summer holiday for the family. And you're not know, the only one. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm not the only one. So the travel names are looking interesting now in terms of this reopening of the world and going back to some sense of normality. Um, what are, where are you focusing in terms of travel and the, the potential for reopening and the, the opportunities there? Yeah, so I think... And I think this ties back into the, the, the conversation that we've had on e-commerce, where the picture that's formed in my head, and like I said to you before we started the recording part, I've, I'm almost frustrated with myself that this didn't become more obvious sooner. But it's clear to me that the any business that benefited from lockdowns had a, had an abnormally strong 2021, which I think they're now facing headwinds and a lot of that spend is dropping out of the base. Mm -hmm. Some of it's stimulus-led, some of it caused by having to stay at home. And so you've got this almost artificially high cyclical earnings base that they, that you're having to compare against. And so that that applies to the, the e-commerce names in particular. Um, on the contrary, the travel guys are the, are the exact opposite, where your, your PEs that you're putting on this year's earnings might be and probably are in many cases higher than normal, but you've got a cyclically low earnings base that is likely to have momentum and probably surprise to the upside. And I've, I've built a fairly sizable position in, in booking holdings. 
which is a, a travel engine, uh, you know, online booking engine. Yeah. And the way I'm thinking about that company is if you look at their, their last few years. So in 2019, they earned um, operating profit of $5.5 billion on, let's call it $15 billion worth of revenue. Uh, in 2020, that went to a loss because you know, turnover fell more than 50%. Uh, 2021, uh, they, they bounced back, but they're still not – Yeah, last year, they were at like $11 billion worth of revenue versus 15 in, in 2019. I think, uh, I think you're probably going to have a year where – and if, if human psychology is anything to go by, I think people are desperate to get out. So I would not be surprised if 2022 and 2023 blow the lights out relative mm. to what we even saw in previous peaks. Um, and so I, I would be I would be betting that they would have a year in 2022 that looks at least as good as 2019, and possibly better. Yeah. Um, and and if that's the case, you know, you're now buying this thing on a forward. Okay, so in my numbers, I'm saying 15 billion dollars of turnover this year, which is similar to 2019. Yeah. Um, profits not quite back to where they were last year. Uh, sorry, in 2019, which is which is arguably too conservative. Um, and that gets you to somewhere around 90, uh, $90 worth of re- uh, earnings, and that's a 27 PE. Okay, so quite a high PE, but I, I would have quite a lot of confidence in that earnings number, and I think it, it could well even be higher. So, so this business you're buying at a, a more or less a 5% free cash flow yield, um, but with an earnings base that I think you can take the view that it's probably still uh, not quite trough, but on the way up. Mm-hmm. And likely to have quite a lot of momentum behind it, uh, and and certainly the yeah. So, so you're not buying peak margins. I think that's the the, the key point to make here, which is uh, the, the polar opposite to what you might have with a lot of e-commerce names. Um, and I think just technically, uh, yeah, you probably agree with this as well. Uh, they're behaving very well. <laughs> yep, they are the travel stocks that I look at. So booking holdings is certainly one of the ones that I look at, and um, and. Technically, above two thousand five hundred dollars a share, there gets very interesting if it breaks yeah. higher through that level. Um, another one that I look at is um, is Expedia, which is also looking very good. Um, break above one hundred and ninety dollars on that share price would be quite bullish. And then, yeah, a couple of others, a couple of hotel groups and what have you. But generally speaking, as a theme and as an industry, quite right. I agree. The technicals are looking quite good for all of those travel names, and uh, and, and it does back up with the fundamental outlook and the general reopening theme that we've been talking about. So completely concur there. Look, the other point is that I think, yeah, through a cycle, these are good businesses as well. If you look at booking, it it kind of fits in my my kind of core thesis of what I look for in a company, fairly capital light, uh, variable cost structure, high margins through a cycle. Um, what I've struggled with personally is, uh, is the idea of chasing oil, oil names here, which have done very well. Um, but yeah, a deeply cyclical industry, um, yeah, high return, uh, yeah, high, high mm-hmm. capital requirements, n- low returns on capital through a cycle. Not the types of businesses that I look to to invest in, but I concede that that's kind of where all the action has been, and that's sort of passed me by. Yeah, yeah. probably yeah. because of my own uh, requirements of what I look for. But uh, perhaps it's also a lesson not to be too dogmatic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, oil investing is is very, very cyclical. Any any resources, uh, yeah, really are, are very cyclical. It's booms, feast and famine. So yeah, they're having yeah. a good time at the moment. 
how long it lasts, well, I guess it remains to be seen. Huh? Um, Sean, we're nearly we're nearly out of time in terms of what we've got allotted for this this podcast. So you know, let's move away from some of the hard issues and some of the softer things. You, when we spoke last time, you said that uh, physical fitness is something that keeps you going, uh, particularly yep. in the tough times, and that you'd you you hadn't been able to do your normal swimming at the gym because of lockdowns, and you're taken up running. So I know you know running is one of those things that the bug can bite and and some people just never seem to stop running once they've started so has the bug bitten you that badly or are you back in the it's pool? amazing hey i was never a runner i mean in the kind of 39 years prior to to covid um i was never a runner and yeah yeah covid forced me to to start running around the block because that's all we could do really and uh and it has bitten so like that's my primary form of exercise now i used to swim a lot um, but uh, I haven't been in the pool or in the ocean for yeah over two years now in terms of swimming. I should try, probably try to get back into it. But yeah, running running has been very effective. Huh? Um, okay. I've I, I paddled a little bit with a kayak in, in the sea once in a while, but uh, that's way less time efficient than just putting your running shoes on and going around the block for half an hour. So yeah, it, has, sure. it hasn't been bitten. <laughs> okay, good to hear. All right, Sean, last thing uh, for investors who would be interested in following you and investing into your fund, how do how they go about that? Yeah, the best thing is to get in touch with me directly. Um, yeah. So my email address is sashton at primeassetmanagers.com, all one word. Yeah. And uh, if you get in touch directly, I can send the relevant information on to you. Okay, super. And you're also on Twitter, so the people can look you up on Twitter, Sean Absolutely. Ashton. Absolutely. My, yeah, my, my, my handle is on Twitter. Yeah. Super. Well, Sean, it's really been great catching up with you again. I think there's a lot of very meaty content that we've talked about here, and I think a lot of interesting opportunities lining up given what's happened to the market recently. So I've really appreciated this time and enjoyed it. Uh, I think it'll be super to chat to you again towards the end of this year or maybe the start of 2023, where we can review this and have a look at how things have been over the next year and where you're seeing opportunities at that stage likewise Garth superb chatting always thanks very much Sean you take care you too cheers bye cheers thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders brought to you by IG a world leading CFD provider we really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there and a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.